welcome back to Subject to Cross. Happy New Year. It's 2020 now. Liar. <laughs> We're recording this in, you know, 2019, but... But we're acting like it. This it's, is going to be released in 2020. This is going to be released. So we don't in have to act like it's 2020. Happy New Year. Okay. So what we are going to teach you this episode is about the Cosby case. Uh, America's dad. America's dad. So Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus William Henry Cosby Jr. And the reason why this is still relevant is that. This past month, on December 10th, 2019, the Superior Court of Pennsylvania issued its opinion denying the appellate efforts or the appeal of Mr. Cosby. And we're going to talk to you about it. I think this case is really interesting. What do you think, Pete? I agree. So we're going to split this episode up into a few segments. I don't really know how many. kind of depends how long we talk and if we can keep it organized. I was hoping that the first segment would be on the facts. Why are you laughing already? Because that was directed at me when you said, <laughs> keep it organized, let's be honest. You keep it organized and I'll try not to mess up your organization. It's okay. Let's let's focus on the facts because I think the facts are pretty important. In to this, any case. To any case, but especially in this case because there's a lot of nuance to it. So right now, uh, is he serving a sentence? Pending this appeal, or did he, they stay the sentence? Oh, I'm pretty sure he's serving the sentence. So Bill Cosby was sentenced to three to ten years incarceration or imprisonment because he was convicted for three counts of aggravated indecent assault, which is a felony two, Pete? Uh, I imagine it's a felony one. Felony one. Um, do you want to tell the listeners what aggravated indecent assault is? Um, basically penetration of a body part um, without medical purpose. So it can be a finger into a body part or a penis. Um, you know, uh, in this case, I think it was, uh, I don't, what, what was it? Was it oral sex or was it digital penetration? Digital. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that means, well, I mean, I think our view, listeners can understand what digital penetration means. Yeah. And in this case, the allegation was that he had drugged the um, victim um, and that and incapacitated her, and she was incapable of consenting to the uh, penetration. So, I was just going to look up whether he's actually serving his sentence. Oh, I go think ahead. He is. Uh, so aggravated indecent assault. There's a few subsections that he was found guilty of, but in essence, it's penetration of another without their consent. Uh, this person was unconscious that. That brings up another subsection, or allegedly unconscious, or the jury found her to be unconscious for purposes of this. So here are the facts as summarized. He is in prison, by the way. Montgomery County? Oh, well, state. He already went up to SCI state. SCI Phoenix, so it is in Montgomery County, last I checked anyway. So this case starts in January 2004. It's, so sometimes I'll say appellant, that means uh, Mr. Cosby or Bill Cosby, and then there's the victim. So Bill Cosby sexually assaulted the then 30-year-old victim at his home in Elkins Park, Montgomery County. On the evening of the assault, the victim was invited into the then 66-year-old appellant's home to discuss her upcoming career change. 
She had decided to leave her position as the director of basketball operations for the Temple women's basketball team and to return to her native Canada to pursue a career in massage therapy. When she arrived at the home, she entered through the kitchen door as she had on prior visits. So she's at Bill Cosby's home. Uh She and Bill Cosby sat at the kitchen table and began talking. There was a glass of water and a glass of wine on the table when she arrived. Initially, she drank only the water because she had not eaten a lot and she didn't want to drink on an empty stomach. Eventually, Bill Cosby convinced her to taste the wine. They discussed the stress she was feeling and the prospect of telling the basketball coach that she was leaving Temple. The victim then left the table to use the restroom. When she returned, Bill Cosby was standing. I don't know why I keep saying Bill Cosby. Appellant. Cosby. I don't know why I say his full name. Just say Cosby. Cosby. Cosby was standing by the table, having gone upstairs himself while she was in the bathroom. He reached out his hand and offered her three blue pills. He told her, these are your friends. They'll help you take the edge off. She asked him if she should put the pills under her tongue. He told her to put them down with water, and she did. Do you have any reaction to that so far? No. None? No. Which which of my reaction be? The fact that he's offering her pills to begin with and she's readily taking them is causes me pause. Well, I mean, she said she was stressed and he was offering her like a, uh, I guess, a anti-stress pill, right? He just said, he just said, these are your friends. They'll help take the edge off. He doesn't say they're anti-anxiety. He doesn't say what they are. I find it awful coincidental that she was, I mean, you know, we can go back and I'm sure that, uh, I mean, we know who tried the case the first time, and he's an amazing lawyer, a uh, friend of ours. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure he would have questioned about the coincidence of the fact that she's feeling stress and he just happened to have uh, these three pills to hand her, right? I would think so. After she took the pills, victim and Cosby sat back down at the kitchen table and continued their conversation. She began to have double vision and told Cosby that she could see two of him. Her mouth became cottony, and she began to slur her words. Cosby told her that he thought she needed to relax. Victim did not know what was happening to her, but felt that something was wrong. They stood up from the table, and Cosby took her arm to help steady her. Her legs felt rubbery as he walked her through the dining room to a sofa in another room. He placed her on the sofa on her left side and told her to relax there. She began to panic and did not know what was happening to her body. She felt weak and was unable to speak. She was unable to maintain consciousness. She was jolted awake by Cosby forcefully penetrating her vagina with his fingers. Cosby had positioned himself around her on the couch, penetrated her vagina with his fingers, and fondled her breasts. He took her hand, placed it on his penis, and masturbated himself with her hand. Victim was unable to tell him to stop or to physically stop the assault. She awoke sometime between 4 and 5 a.m. to find her pants unzipped and her bra up around her neck. She fixed her clothing and began to head towards the front door. As she walked towards the door, she saw Cosby standing in the doorway between the kitchen and the dining room. He was wearing a robe and slippers and told her there was a muffin and tea for her on the table. She sipped the tea, took a piece of the muffin with her, and drove herself home. Anything else there? Well, you know, it, he was convicted, right? So there were credibility determinations made here, and we can talk about, I mean, we will talk about some of the other evidence that was ad- admitted in the case. Um, but 
you know, there there are things here that I would cross-examine. Like what? Well, I mean, what I find, and and I don't diminish, um, I don't defend the act of sexual assault, right? I defend people accused. We defend people who are accused of sexual assault. It what sets off my radars is the convenient manner of her coming to, right? Having consciousness and the ability to recall very damning details while supposedly being under the influence of something involuntarily that was rendering her unconscious and, and you know, unable to do anything. Um, that doesn't mean it didn't happen, but it is something that, you know, that, that sets off my radar, you know, in terms of, of her ability to remember those details. The other thing that sets off my radar, and we are speaking purely from a criminal defense Correct. perspective. If we were to see this case, how to defend it, what issues there may be, and and what sticks out to us as, as something to... From a cold read of her testimony. Right, to be mindful of. What sticks out to me in the rendition of these facts so far is what she's remembering as, as you're talking about, but also there's nothing about whether or not she's doing anything. So the reason why I say that is she could have memory coming in and out, but if she's outwardly not portraying that and she's moving and speaking and reacting, then how would Cosby know? Or how would anybody know that she's losing memory? And then the other angle to this that causes some reaction is the fact that when she does come to, she sips some tea and has a muffin. Mm -hmm. That yeah, at, at I mean, four I, or five in the morning, that just yeah. strikes me as I don't hmm. I don't find it productive from a defense perspective to necessarily um, question the way people react to an, an allegation of assault because I think you know there's ample literature out there that either explains it or or um, um, well explains it. Um, but to me, again, the, the issue is the, the memory. But, hey, you know, he had his day in court. The jury believed her. Um, the concern that I have with this case and that we'll talk about is the other evidence, the cumulative evidence that was admitted. Um, and, indeed, whether he, um, whether he should have been prosecuted in the first place, frankly, I think my read of this is that, yes, you know, I don't. I don't see anything that precluded him from being prosecuted. I assume we'll talk about that, whether in this episode or another episode. My concerns with this case, and I have written on it: hard cases make bad law. This is a hard case, and it's made some bad law that we have to deal with, relative to the admission of uh, prior allegations of um, what we call prior bad acts evidence, um, whether. Um, Evidence should be admitted when a prosecutor tells you that it's not going to be admitted, and the prosecutor testifies in a pretrial hearing in this case that he said it wasn't well, going to be admitted. Okay, you're getting ahead of yourself. Okay. You're All getting right. ahead of well, yourself. Well, those are my concerns. I think this case, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for, for Bill Cosby. I mean, you know, I, there's ample evidence that he did this and that he, he was convicted of doing it. What I do have concerns about is that I think that respectfully that the appellate court has tried to justify some things that were done at the trial court level that probably shouldn't have been done in terms of evidence. No, but what I'm trying to do in going through the facts and, and just highlighting certain angles to the facts as, as they're described by the appellate court is just to, to flag people to 
certain things that might stick out, whether or not it's productive to actually cross-examine and put put it into a defense. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just, well, what sticks out? Because that's how you start to form your defense. And sometimes you have a couple of facts that stick out and one seems instructive and then you get further down the case and it has no bearing on it. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I'm reading this opinion and having had no experience in this case other than hearing what was on the news and knowing that our colleague was defending it, um, that was a weird piece of evidence. I was just, huh, that's weird. The muffin. The muffin was weird. All right, so at the time of the assault, victim had known Cosby since the fall of 2002 when she met him in her capacity as the director of basketball operations. She was introduced to Cosby by someone at a basketball game uh, at Temple, and victim was accompanied by this person and several others giving Cosby a tour of the newly renovated facilities. Several days after the initial introduction, Cosby called Temple with some questions about the renovations and spoke to victim on the phone. Several weeks later, she began to speak to him on the phone at her office. They discussed having met at the game at Temple. They began having more regular conversations, mostly pertaining to Temple sports. The conversations also included personal information about victim's history as a professional basketball player, her educational background, and her career goals. After several phone conversations, Cosby invited victim to his home for dinner. And we, when she arrived there, Cosby greeted her and took her to the room where she ate her dinner. The chef served her a meal and a glass of wine, and she ate alone. After finishing her meal, Cosby came into the room and sat next to her on the couch. At this point, he placed his hand on her thigh. She was aware that this was the first time Cosby touched her, but thought nothing of it and left shortly after she had been preparing to do so. Is that before the assault? Yeah, so what this this part of the factual background starts to establish, which I think is instructive for the prior bad acts analysis, that's probably going to be in another episode but that you raised earlier, is that the victim in this case and Cosby had formed a relationship whether platonic or what have you beforehand and that is ultimately one of the distinguishing factors that the defense counsel i believe tried to distinguish from the other women who came in to testify about cosby to show a common scheme so back to the facts cosby invited after after that first time at his house after they had been speaking on the phone a few times and they first met at temple Cosby invited her to attend a blues concert in New York City with other young women who shared similar interests, particularly related to health and homeopathic remedies. She did not see Cosby in person on that trip. Sometime later, she was again invited to dinner at Cosby's house. Um, when she, so for the second time, when she was finished with her meal, I think she ate in the same room she did the first time, Cosby sat beside her on the couch. The conversation again revolved around things the victim could do, break into sports broadcasting, something with her career. On this occasion, Cosby reached over and attempted to unbutton and unzip her pants. She leaned forward to prevent him from undoing her pants. He stopped. She believed she had made it clear she was not interested in any of that. She did not feel threatened by him and did not expect him to make a romantic or sexual advance towards her again. Um, really? That's what the facts say. Mm. Victim continued to have contact with Cosby primarily by phone and related to Temple Sports. Cosby also had contact with victim's family, victim's mother and sister. They attended Cosby's performances in Ontario and afterwards met him backstage. In 2003, Cosby invited victim to meet him in the Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut. 
Um, he put her in touch with somebody at the Connecticut, I'm sorry, at the casino. I'm trying to skip ahead here a little bit just to get to the point. They're establishing a clear background between the victim and Cosby. Um, yeah, it's, oh, here is a weird part. So in this trip, Cosby called the victim and asked her to come to his room for some baked goods. When she arrived there, he invited her in and continued to unpack, unpack his luggage. Um, and she believed some baked goods were on a cart in the room. And during this time, they were still talking about the usual things they talked about, namely her career and temple sports. The victim was seated on the edge of the bed. Cosby lay down on the bed. He fell asleep. And she stayed in the room for several minutes. And then she went back to her own room. And she, uh, the victim testified that during this time, this course of dealing with Cosby and this relationship that had formed, she came to view him as a mentor and a friend. Uh, he was well-respected at Temple as a trustee and alumni, and victim was grateful for the help he was trying to give her in her career. So anything so far, Pete, for you? Well, and she says she continued her friendship with him despite what she felt were two sexual advances. Uh, she was a young, fit woman who did not feel physically threatened by him um yeah i mean i can see how the defense would try to distinguish these allegations from what ultimately was permitted as evidence of prior allegations uncharged criminal activity by cosby um and i could see why you're you're illustrating that um and you know this is the trial courts um accounting of the testimony in other words what caroline's reading from is the the trial court's uh, uh summary of the evidence as is included in this appellate opinion by the superior court and what i'm struck by is just how damning and you know judges often say when you argue well this this is really prejudicial to our case well that's the point it's supposed to be prejudicial to the to the the defense but the fact is that i can clearly see that there is a, a big difference between what they allowed in vis-a-vis -vis these other witnesses and what the allegations were here and you can also see that if those other witnesses were not allowed to testify um, you could have had a field day with these facts in terms of, uh, um, you know, establishing how incongruent it is that she would continue to put herself incongruent? in these. Oh, yeah. Is it incongruent or incongruent? I've never heard incongruent. Let me, let me go to my phone while we're doing that. But the point is that uh, I can see why the prosecution fought so hard to get this 404B evidence in, and I can see how really it all but assured that he was going to be convicted and we'll get we'll explain what 404b evidence is uh shortly so just to tie up this relationship what incongruent oh it's not incongruent are you gonna apologize to me no do you feel slighted apologize <laughs> all right Following the assault between January 2004 and March 2004, victim and Cosby continued to have telephone contact solely regarding Temple Sports. And I'm not reading always verbatim from this. I'm trying to move through it. I didn't even read this stuff. In March 2000, you didn't read the facts of the case? No. Oh, okay. I just wanted to know about the law. 
In March 2004, Cosby invited a victim to a dinner at a restaurant in Philadelphia. And here, and this is kind of interesting compared to one of the other witnesses who testified as this was a common planner scheme, mm-hmm. this, this particular point. Here, the victim attended the dinner and she was hoping to speak to Cosby about the assault. So she was hoping to speak to him about the assault at a dinner after she had been talking to him on the phone for months. Mm-hmm. After the dinner, and this is just a point for possible challenging of the evidence as a defense attorney. After the dinner, Cosby invited her to his home to talk, and once at the home, she attempted to confront him and find out what he gave her and why he assaulted her. She testified that he was evasive and told her he thought she had an orgasm. Unable to get an answer, she lost her courage and then left the home. At the end of March 2004, she moved back to Canada. So now she's in Canada. She has some phone contact with Cosby. She eventually tell, and her mother has phone contact with Cosby. Um, she discloses the assault to her mother. Mother confronts Cosby. Uh, both of both the victim and mother confront Cosby on on a te- on a telephone call. At some point, Cosby um, says that he's going to write down what the pills were and let them know eventually. Um, and ultimately, somebody in Cosby's entourage uh, offers to pay for pay for the victim's education um, and, and some other, set up an educational trust for her. What was the other thing? Um, book flights and make reservations for some other trip. And ultimately, the victim goes to the police in Canada who refer the case to the Montgomery County uh I'm sorry, the uh, Cheltenham Police Department in Montgomery County. And that's what spurred an investigation in 2005 into these allegations. And that is when the Montgomery County District Attorney was Bruce Castor Jr. Anything you want to note about this? About the fact that Bruce Castor Jr. was the district attorney? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had dealings with him. Uh, the The... Uh, he was a very effective, had a very, had a reputation as a very effective uh, trial prosecutor, um, big personality, um, and he and the trial judge were, and I'm not talking out of school because it's part of this opinion, were not fans of each other. So that means, just to give a broader view, the judge who's, who handled Cosby's trial was Judge O'Neill. And he's in this opinion. And what Pete is saying... Is, is that my phone or yours? That was mine, I'm sorry. What Pete is saying is that the district attorney at the time of this initial investigation and Judge O'Neill, who 20... I'm sorry, 10 years later handled the trial. 14. 14 yeah, 13, years, 13 years. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, they weren't fans of each other. No, I think that I think I saw in here that O'Neill was that ran against him for DA, right? I think so. Yeah. So ultimately, because of this investigation by the Montgomery County District District Attorney's Office in 2005, Cosby gets criminal defense attorneys, and he gives a statement to the police. Did you read this part? Mm-hmm. In the statement, Cosby says that he met the victim in 2002 at Temple. They had a social and romantic relationship that began on her second visit to his home. He stated that she was alone with him 
in his home on three occasions. As to the night of the assault, he said that the victim had come to his home and they were talking in the kitchen about her inability to sleep. He told police that he gave her Benadryl that he uses to help him sleep when he travels. He stated that he would take two Benadryl and he would become sleepy right away. He gave the victim one and a half pills. He did not tell the victim what the pills were. He stated that he was comfortable giving her pills to relax her. He stated that she did not appear to be under the influence when she arrived in his home that night. Cosby said that after he gave her the pills, they began to touch and kiss on the couch with clothes on. He stated that she never told him to stop and that he touched her bare breasts and genitalia. He stated that he did not remove his clothing and victim did not touch him under his clothes. He told police, I never intended, and this is quote, I never intended to have sexual intercourse like naked bodies with victim. We were fully clothed. We are petting. I enjoyed it. And then I stopped and went up to bed. We stopped and then we talked, unquote. He said there were at least three other occasions where they engaged in similar petting in his home. When asked if they had ever had intercourse, he said, never asleep or awake. He stated that on each occasion, he initiated the petting and that on her second visit to his home, they were kissing in the hallway and he lifted her bra to kiss her breasts and she told him to stop. Hmm, that's interesting. He stated that just prior to the date of his statement, he spoke to victim's mother on the phone and she asked him about what he had given her daughter. He told victim's mother that he gave victim some pills and that he would send her the name of them. He further stated that he told victim's mother there was no penile penetration, just petting and touching of private parts. That's all corroborated, by the way, by the mother, right? I thought I read that earlier. This is exactly what she says he told her, which is significant. In other words, we frequently have uh, cases where there'll be uh, a one-party consent call, for instance, where either a, a, an alleged victim or somebody on behalf of the victim will have a phone conversation with uh, the uh, suspect. See, there's another to answer that following question. That's another way I would know how to get away with a crime. If somebody called me about the crime, I would not, not talk, talk about on the it. phone um, because the police are probably listening. I don't know that that was a one-party consent phone call in this case. I don't think it was, but the point is that he is absolutely consistent, it seems to me, in terms of telling the police what he discussed with the mother, volunteering what he talked to the mother about. There's no indication that, from this reading anyway, that the police had told him they were aware of that phone call. Now, maybe they were, but the point is that he's being truthful with them. And, and then the issue becomes, if he's being truthful, is what he's saying consistent with the crime? R right. And But the point is that, that I'm making is that it, it comes across as credible. Oh, right. Because he's credible on a collateral matter of this phone call with the mother. But even, even as credible, is his credible statement a crime, admitting to a crime? And I think that's what they touch upon with his depositions. They okay. thought, and he later will tell you about the depositions, mm -hmm. but he gives statements that his lawyers thought wouldn't be inculpatory, and they ultimately were. Well, they're inculpatory when you view them in conjunction with what she testifies to. Exactly. Uh, so where were we? Oh, he also described, and this is still, I'm, I'm talking about the factual background to the initial investigation and his conversation with the police. He described he does not recall using the word consensual when describing the encounter to victim's mother. He also answered no when asked if he ever knew victim to be untruthful. So now he's saying 
you know, she's credible. And this is the conversation I had with mom. And mom's, mom's uh, I don't know, how she recounts that conversation is consistent with what I'm saying. So everybody's mm-hmm. credible. It's just a matter of whether or not those facts amount to a crime. And following the interview, Cosby, unprompted, provided law enforcement with the pills that were later identified as Benadryl. Ultimately, a month later, uh, Bruce Castor, the district attorney, issued a second signed press release stating that he decided not to prosecute Cosby. The press release cautioned that the decision could be reconsidered, and he never personally met with the victim. So Castor didn't. Castor didn't. The district attorney's office didn't. And back then, unlike now with Marcy's Law and everything, um, I think that there well, there wasn't an obligation, right? Uh, it wouldn't be Marcy's Law. Well, Marcy's Law, you're, you have to be kept apprised of every court proceeding and everything. In this day and age, my point is that I can think of no circumstance where a prosecutor in a case like this would um, make a public uh, um, statement about not pursuing the case without speaking with the victim. This is also before the Me Too movement. True. So there's been some social pressure since 2005 for prosecutors to handle cases a certain way and to exercise a certain due diligence. Mm -hmm. After this... uh, She already had two attorneys, you see that. mm -hmm. Dolores Trayani and is it Bebe Kivitz? Bebe Kivitz? Who I think represent a lot of alleged victims uh, of particularly sexual offenses, right? Isn't that kind of their practice? I don't know them. I think it is. Um, And they say they first learned of his decision uh, by a reporter. I'm sure that made them happy. Um, The reporter informed uh, them that Castor had issued a press release uh, and Trayani had not received any prior notification of the decision not to prosecute. and then, you know, then they get to the present day when they're talking about a pretrial hearing. Castor testified it was his intention in, 2005, in 2005 to strip Cosby of his Fifth Amendment privilege to force him to sit for a deposition in a yet filed civil case. And that Cosby's lawyer agreed with this assessment. Castor testified he relayed this intention to his then first assistant, Risa Furman. First assistant would have been his second in command. So I want to unpack that a little, and I want to wrap this episode up. Because right. this has been a heavy, factually heavy episode. Um, Risa Furman, yeah, is Castor's first assistant. She ultimately became the district attorney of Montgomery County, and she's now a court of common pleas judge. Pete is referencing a pretrial hearing held in 2016 where Castor the former district attorney was a witness and explaining his reasoning not to prosecute Cosby for these allegations. And the reasoning was, it seems from the previous strategy meeting they had in 2005, everyone was anticipating a civil lawsuit. And in the civil lawsuit, Cosby, if there was a criminal prosecution, would have asserted his Fifth Amendment right to not testify in a deposition. And part of Castor's thought process was if there was a promise not to prosecute or an agreement not to prosecute or a representation not to prosecute, because it's kind of up in the air what it was by virtue of this case, how it evolved, then Cosby could be deposed and he wouldn't assert his Fifth Amendment right. And ultimately, there was a civil case. Cosby did testify. And 
about 10 years later, his deposition, the testimony he gave in that civil case that he gave based off of the representation that Castor and the Montgomery County DA's office wouldn't prosecute him was used against him about a decade later in the criminal trial. And that was an issue on appeal. Anything you want to add to that? No, you got it. So that that is where we are. There, I mean, the, the, the facts go into what Cosby says in the deposition. He makes similar admissions that he did in the police investigation. Um, he says, he, so he describes the incident to be, I'm getting to the point. So he then described the encounter. Then I lifted her bra up and her and our skin, so our skin could touch. We rubbed, we kissed, we stopped. I moved back to the sofa, coming back in a position. She's on top of me. I place my knee between her legs. She's up. We kiss. I hold her. She hugs. I move her to the position of down. She goes with me down. I'm behind her. I have my left arm behind her neck. Her neck is there and her head. There's a pillow, which is a pillow that goes with the decoration of the sofa. It's not a bedroom pillar, pillow. I am behind her. We are in what would be called a spooning position. My face is right on the back of her head, around her ear. I go inside her pants. She touches me. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable for her. She pulls her hand. I don't know if she got tired or what. She then took her hand and put it on top of my hand to push it in further. I move my fingers. I do not talk. She does not talk, but she makes a sound, which I feel was an orgasm, and she was wet. She was wet when I went in. So that kind of goes back to the initial point I raised at the beginning of the factual background when she's describing what she remembers. Well, what about what the other person would, would see? Would they hear sounds? Would they think she's moving? Is she assisting him um, based off of what he's saying? So that, you know, if somebody's making sounds and, and moving and, and giving indications of being awake, the other person can't know that they're unconscious. That would be a defense argument you're nodding your head do you agree yes okay um the other all right are you done with his uh, deposition yeah so what what happens after that is on november 8 2006 the civil case settled and the victim entered into a confidential settlement agreement with cosby and two other uh, people entities cosby agreed to pay her 3.38 million dollars and another entity paid her $20,000. As part of the settlement agreement, she agreed that she would not initiate a criminal complaint arising from the instant assault. So much for that. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know, does she have to return the money? Doubtful. She probably takes the position she didn't initiate it. The Montgomery County District Attorney, Kevin Steele, who ultimately brings the charges, initiated it. Um, I imagine this was part of the trial record, though. In other words, they were allowed as part of the defense, since this is part of this judge's uh, recitation of, uh, of the facts. They were made aware of this. And again, if, if the other evidence didn't come in, this would have really impacted negatively on her credibility. Let's, You're holding me back. We're done. Oh, okay. Good. We're done the facts. This, this wraps up this episode of Subject to Cross. We'll be back talking about the evidentiary issues and the evidence that ultimately comes into this trial. Sign off, Pete. Bye.